This charming example of old-world chivalry was struck off the books when I was at Jarndyce. Its demise was indeed one of the things I protested against, and about which George Lordus Copeson, deceased, questioned me in detail as I sat in an electric chair. Now I am delighted to feel the air throb with uncivilized fifty cows, because without them I would be dead. Shadow men wilt and die for cover. Annie the Ox is driving Jim's RV, and Gonzo has the second. Leah is riding shotgun with an actual shotgun clasped tightly in her hands. She picks off a couple of bad guys on the outside and snarls at them. And I swear for a moment that she has angel's wings, my lover, my furious, lethal woman. One of us should be dangerous. I'm so proud it's her. Egon Schlender leaps out and holds me up, and I realize at this time that I have been wounded, and I look down at my leg. For a moment, I am weirdly hopeful, but once again, I have not been shot. There is a slender spike sticking out of me, and by the feel of the nasty, audible grating which proceeds from it and buzzes up to my hip and down to my knee and fizzes against my teeth, the damned thing is lodged in the bone. This bastard object is standard issue to men of Gonzo's profession. It is made of a ceramic material which is not readily detected by X-ray. And four or five of them can be strapped around the upper leg of the average man of action and thrown at targets of opportunity. They fly straight and will pierce some armor because the sharp tip penetrates Kevlar weave and the blade edge cuts through the individual threads rather than trying to penetrate a mass of them as a bullet does. Unscrupulous individuals minded towards civilian wetwork rather than combat have been known to poison the blood grooves. But since I am still alive, it is a reasonable guess that this is not the case with the one currently occupying pride of place in my thigh. Egon loads me into the RV and yells to Jim that we're going to have to get somewhere so he can treat people, and I realize that almost everyone is hurt in one way or another. Jim is sporting a gash along his side, and Annie has her arm in a makeshift splint. And Egon Schlender himself has some hastily stitched holes on the left side of his face. It's not surprising. It seems as if the air itself has started shooting at us. I look at Leah, please God, but she is only scraped and bruised and extremely pissed off and afraid. She checks my thigh and zaps me with a local. Then there is a bright flash as she removes the spike. I can't feel the pain exactly. But I'm very aware that something alien is being dragged out of my leg bone, and not all the nerves are entirely asleep. She touches one on the way out, and I say something manly like "ow" or "mother." She superglues me together. This is what superglue is actually for, and wraps the whole thing up with a bit of someone's dress shirt. I love her even more. Gonzo leads us out into the countryside, and the farther we get from the camp, the less severe the fighting is. We drive on, and it's misty and cool, and the wheels thrum beneath us, and the sound of the engine, and the road is tranquil. We stop, and people change places to get some rest, 
and Leah collapses onto my shoulder and falls asleep like a child. I hand my looted compass to Annie the Ox, and she stares at me as if I have done a magic trick, then grins. Well, damn, says Annie the Ox, nodding. Not bad, not bad at all. And she ruffles my hair. We move on. Sooner or later, someone will have to say, What the fuck was that? But that time is not yet. By mutual consent, we're just leaving it alone for a while. Gonzo doesn't take a break. He's too wired. When we slow for the second time, it is because Annie has seen something at the side of the road, drawn our collective attention to it. We break and stop, and watchful Jim Hepzibah stands by, but there is no one here. We all saw from a distance a family walking single file. From close to, we see only stunted trees and broken earth and fog. We heard them, even caught a whiff of sweat and bandages on the wind, but they are gone now, and perhaps they never existed. The next time it is Jim Hepzibah who spots them, a column of our guys disconsolately trudging westwards. They are gone before he can slow down, tricks of the light. A bit later, soldiers appear as we pause to assist a lone woman with a baby, who turns out to be a slender boy with a bundle of rags, swaying his hips in a ludicrous counterfeit. He scampers away into the forest, shouting abuse, and there are bullets. The whole thing is petty, a moment of shock and almost of irritation. Someone is shooting at us. It's so rude. We shoot back until they stop. We move on. Then a jeep draws alongside, very fast. A slender figure in fatigues, shivering with cold, eyes fixed on the road ahead and the horizon, sits alone at the wheel. Annie looks at Jim, and Jim makes a frantic gesture, and Annie, and perforce Gonzo, pick up the pace. Sally Culpepper has blood on her elegant eyebrows, and she obviously didn't manage to grab a coat before she lit out. She won't answer when Jim calls her, and for the longest time she seems to think we're like the ghosts at the roadside. And finally, Jim steps from the machine gun platform into the jeep next to her, and she all but kills him, Razor Bowie whipping round in a blur. Jim does the smart thing, puts the outside of his arm up and takes the hit there, and Sally wrenches back and jolts and comes back to us, and Jim puts his arms around her as she drives, ignoring the gash on his arm as if it were a mosquito bite. Maybe it is. Maybe Jim Hepzibah's wearing chainmail under there. On the other hand, he's bleeding. Maybe Ronnie Chung's hot iron filings and rough concrete blocks have made Jim Hepzibah immune to minor injuries. Or maybe it's just Jim Hepzibah, because he's in love. And isn't this exactly what I would do for Leah? Sally slows to a more manageable pace, and I clamber up into the gun nest, and we head on, silent, down the long, dark road. I get to be a hero for a while. Then it's someone else's turn, and I go back down into the car, and Leah uses me as a pillow. We speed on through the gathering night. Leah wakes and doesn't speak. 
I know she's awake because her breathing has changed, but her eyes are closed and she doesn't draw away from my shoulder, which is about the only good thing going on. Later, she asks where we're going. Gonzo glances at me. Cope's in order withdrawal, Gonzo says, and I look right back at him and say, Yes, he did, and Gonzo knows that I am lying. I'm not sure if he loves me or hates me for saving us all from a heroic, pointless last stand. He knows that it was a necessary lie, but it is not something he would have done. Leah gets her answer from Jim Hepzibah. Our destination is Corvid's Field, which is the name given by all the foreign forces in the elective theatre to the small flat strip of green grass and cracked runway which serves as the UN's gesture in the direction of Adikatir. The local name is long and musical and relates to a legend about monsters and magic and, probably somewhat later, Buddha. It has too many consonants and a precise intonation which, of all of us, as far as I know, including the men, only Jim Hepzibah can get close to. He has an ear for melody. Twenty years ago, at least, says Jim Hepzibah, after a kind of drawing in your memory pause, there was a guy flew a small plane out of Corvid's field. Back then it was still called Bravo Strip by anyone who didn't call it by the Kateri name, and people just about still came here as tourists. Guy's name was Bob Castle, but he played a decent game of chess, and everyone who knew him called him Rook, which is the other word for a castle in chess. He glances back to make sure he's telling her something she already knows. Leah nods confirmation. So Castle, Rook, decided that was a pretty cool handle, and he painted a big black bird on his tail fin and changed his call sign, and he went right on flying his charters and taking backpackers on little pleasure hops and filling in the off-season with some more grey area kind of stuff like medical supplies which may or may not have had a legitimate source. Those grey area cargoes he got from a local fixer called Harry Mangil, an Anglo-Chinese kateri with messed up legs, maybe polio or something, not sure. He was a little weasel geezer who could make you laugh in about a second and a half and have your fillings out while you were doing it. And Harry had a gorgeous wife, about twenty years old, called Yvette. And Harry and Yvette and Rook used to spend every Friday night hanging out and playing mahjong with whatever girl Rook was dating and drinking cheap hooch from Harry's still. Jim Hepzibah turns halfway in his seat and glances around to be sure everyone is paying attention. He frowns. Rook never made a move on Yvette, and Yvette never made a move on Rook. It just wasn't a thing. I say this because people immediately think there's a whole love triangle aspect to this story, and that pisses me off because you can get three people in a room without someone screwing someone else's spouse and because these were good people and honourable people, and this isn't that kind of weak-ass story. Are we clear? No triangle, says Leah. Gotcha. So one night, Yvette comes to Rook in a fluster, and she says Harry's gone, just gone, and she doesn't know where he is, 
and she thinks maybe he got taken by bandits, or maybe someone he was doing business with wasn't into the right kind of business, and she thinks she knows where Harry was going, and will Rook fly her around there so she can look down from on high and see if she can see anything, like his car, or him, or something? Please. So, Rook says no. He says absolutely no. He tells her go home. Harry will be back, but we are not going flying low over some criminal sons of bitches who are doing criminal sons of bitches type business with Harry, because they will get nervous and shoot him and us. And Yvette goes home, and Rook gets himself in his plane, and he goes up and he looks for Harry himself, because he thinks Yvette is absolutely right. He takes himself a big old automatic rifle for personal security and a couple of grenades for added personal security, and he goes out towards the mountains, which is where criminal sons of bitches mostly do business in this region. He goes out and he flies over a camp and he sees Harry's jeep all shot up, and he drops one of his grenades on the tents down below because his friend is dead down there. Now he knows what will happen next. But he's an emotional guy, this rook, and he does what he thinks is the right thing. And the leader of these folk down on the ground is a huge bastard, a man called Nand. He comes out and he shoots Rook through the floor of the plane, just plain lucky or unlucky, or he just puts so many shells in the air that one of them has to do something because Rook is flying so low. Rook knows he's all done. And he brings the plane around one last time. On the ground, Nand is cursing him and shooting at him and blowing bits off the wings. He shoots up the cockpit pretty good. Rook takes a few more, but he keeps that plane level and going in a straight line, right towards this evil son of a bitch who killed his friend. Gets so close, he's staring Nand right in the eye. And then he pulls the pin on the second grenade, and the plane comes down on the camp in a hail of fire. So Rook kills the ogre. But the thing is, Harry wasn't dead at all. He'd had his car stolen right out from under him, and a bunch of assholes had ripped him off and tried to kill him. But he was fast and smart, and he ducked away into the jungle. Maybe they would have gone after him. But Rook arrived about that time, and they got busy. So Harry was footsore, but he was alive. He came home to Yvette, just like Rook had said he would. So when Harry made it rich, he bought up the strip and got people around to calling it Corvid's Field, because a Rook is a kind of Corvid, maybe the only good kind, little headstone for a friend. And then Harry and Yvette packed up and went away. And no one ever saw them again. Jim Hepzibah smiles a sad little smile. Leah sniffs. But the local people, the Katiri farmers and traders, and the pirates from Lake Ada, they liked Rook too, and they say the birds of Corvid's Field fly around the strip each dusk, and they fly in formation like a little single-engine plane. And that's the spirit of Bob Castle, the Rook, watching over Corvid's field and enjoying the sunset. And woe betide the man who steps out of line there, because 
Rook may not have any grenades left, but he still has a rifle, and he's a mean shot. Jim Hepzibah grins like a Viking, and you can pretty much smell the aviation fuel and the cheap flyboy cigars, and you can hear Nand the bandit screaming as he sees those burning fragments coming down on him from the sky.